When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I dined yesterday with Mr. Madison. Mrs. Madison is a fine woman, and her two sisters are equally so. One of them is married to George Washington, one of the two nephews of the president who were sometimes at our house. These ladies, whose names were Payne, are of a Quaker family, once of North Carolina. John Adams. Mrs. Madison is a handsome woman, looks much younger than her husband. She is tall and majestic, her manners affable, but a little affected. She has been very much admired and is still fond of admiration, loads herself with finery and dressed without any taste. And amidst all her finery, you may discover that in neatness, she is very deficient. Her complexion is brilliant, her neck and bosom the most beautiful I ever saw. Her face expresses nothing but good nature. It is impossible, however, to be with her and not be pleased. There is something very fascinating about her, yet I do not think it possible to know what her real opinions are. She is all things to all men, not the least of a prude, as she one day told an old bachelor and held up her mouth for him to kiss. Francis Few. Mr. Madison was reserved for another widow, who some years after became connected to him by the nuptial tie. This lady was Mrs. Todd. She was originally a Virginian, and her family were of the Society of Friends. Her first husband, who was an attorney of Philadelphia, was poisoned by septic acid during the prevalence of yellow fever in that city. The death of this person, who, though respectable, was but a plain, plodding man, enabled her to emerge from the mediocrity of her condition. She was a fine person and a most engaging countenance, which pleases not so much from mere symmetry or complexion as from expression. Her smile, her conversation, and her manners are so engaging that it is no wonder that such a young widow, with her fine blue eyes and large share of animation, should be indeed a queen of hearts. By the second marriage, she has become the wife of one of the first men of the nation and enjoys all the respectability and éclat of such a position. Samuel L. Mitchell While we have discussed other people who are either the spouse or a relative of the president, and, as such, were seen as playing a unique role, Dolly Madison is arguably the first who acted in the role much as we think of the position of First Lady operating in the modern era. However, in order to better understand the part she played in the Madison administration, we need to explore her life up to that point to see what experiences and individuals helped shape her into the First Lady she became. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Kevin, Karen, and Alex for reading the intro quotes for this episode. 
One of the things I like to do with special episodes like this is to invite folks who are near and dear to me in my life outside of podcasting to provide the opening quotes. And it's especially apt for an episode on Dolly Madison, for, as you will soon learn, family and friends were especially dear to her. Thus, let me introduce you to these three folks who play key roles in my life. Kevin is the Associate Rector at our church and has been a source of wisdom and inspiration for myself as well as other members of our church family. He has been a great support over the years as I've contemplated the path ahead, both spiritually and in life. He also has a fantastic sense of humor, and you can't help but feel comfortable in his presence. You know he is a friend from the first moment you meet, and it is a joy and honor to have him in our lives. Karen has been a dear friend for a number of years now, and together with both of our spouses, we have been through the best of times and the worst of times. She was a champion for me from the moment we met, and I can never repay all the kindness and love that she's given so freely to me over the years, though I try every day. She's a brilliant and creative person, the kind that you always want in your corner, and enriches the lives of all blessed to know her. Last but certainly not least, regular listeners of the podcast may recognize the voice of my beloved husband, Alex. Those of you who follow the podcast on social media, as well as patrons, may know that it's been a difficult time for us lately. The losses were coming quickly for a time, and it was all that we could do to just keep things going as we processed our grief. As always, when faced with adversity, the recent challenges have brought us even closer together. And even after 20 years come this September of knowing one another, I find myself falling deeper in love with Alex each and every day. He surprises me as few people can, and in the best of ways. He gives his whole heart to life and to those around him. Though at times that means he takes the weight of the world on his shoulders to his detriment. He makes me laugh, he holds me when I cry, and he tries every day to make things a bit better for us and for others. Mon cher, merci, et je t'aime avec tout mon cœur. And thanks to all three of these wonderful people, not just for the opening quotes, but for being a part of my life. I am eternally grateful. For long-time listeners, you already know this. But if it's your first time listening to an episode of the podcast focused on the life and career of a first lady, the format is always a bit different than our standard episodes. This one, however, deviates even from what we've been doing to date in those first lady episodes. So let me take a moment to explain. Usually, I just have one episode covering the first lady, which is usually a bit longer than normal. As I started to work on this episode, however, I quickly realized that the task of unpacking Dolly Madison's life and legacy would take some time in order to do the work justice. Thus, instead of one longer three-part episode, I'm dividing the three sections into three mini-series episodes. First episode of the series will explore Dolly's life up to James Madison assuming the presidency in 1809. Then we'll have an interview with Hillary Hicks of James Madison's Montpelier, which focuses on Dolly's tenure as first lady, before finishing up with the final episode looking at Dolly's life after leaving the president's house in 1809. While this takes us on a tangent far bit from our regular narrative episodes in the Madison Presidency series, I believe that ultimately you will feel as I do that this is a beneficial tangent in order to understand someone who is a key figure not just in the life of James Madison, but in helping to shape the role of the First Lady of the United States. Dolly's life also provides much insight and perspective into societal trends and life in the nation's capital during the early republic that would impact presidential history. So I hope you'll stick with me as we temporarily divert our focus 
to the life and legacy of Dolly Madison before returning to our regular run of episodes. With that said, let us get started on this journey through First Lady history. The story of Dolly's life began in New Garden, which is in modern-day Guilford County in North Carolina on May 20, 1768. There, she was born as the third child of John and Mary Coles Payne in the Payne's log cabin. Her parents were members of the Society of Friends, who you may also know as the Quakers. Mary had been born into the tradition, while John had been converted three years after he and Mary had wed. As noted by historian Catherine Algor, their wedding, quote, marked the union of two of Virginia's oldest white families. But like many Virginians would in subsequent generations, the Paynes decided that their future prospects lay elsewhere. And thus, a year after John's conversion, the family crossed the border into North Carolina to settle at New Garden, which was a Quaker community in the northwestern portion of the state. As described by the editors of a selection of Dolly's letters, David B. Madden and Holly C. Schulman, quote, Migration to North Carolina meant a shift into a more intensely Quaker, less cosmopolitan atmosphere. It demonstrated a voluntary commitment to Quaker ideals. Again from Al Gore, quote, The Paines certainly intended to settle. Leaving family and friends behind was a serious step. More significantly, John had sold his Virginia land to buy property in North Carolina. John listed his occupation as a merchant in New Garden, though the details of his business are not known. For whatever reason, whether due to his failure in the mercantile business or missing family or not fitting into the new community or other factors, the Payne's tenure in the Tar Heel State was a short one. Shortly after Dolly's birth, in 1769, they returned to their former home in the Cedar Creek community in Virginia. As the years went on, the Paynes had numerous other children, which provided Dolly with a plethora of younger siblings to look after. In terms of Dolly's education, Mattern and Schulman asserted that, in the absence of any solid information and, quote, little mention of schools in the records of the Virginia Friends, her, i.e., Dolly's letters, suggests that she received only a rudimentary education. In her teenage years, life for Dolly and her family would be set on a new trajectory due to a series of decisions by her father, John. In 1782, the Virginia General Assembly made it legal for slave owners to emancipate those they enslaved, something which had previously been forbidden. Thus, the following year, John Payne, in keeping with the Quaker faith, decided to free the individuals he had enslaved. But this decision meant that he could not survive any longer as a planter in Virginia. Thus, he moved his family, including the 15-year-old Dolly, to the Quaker stronghold of Philadelphia. If the move to North Carolina was a change for the Paines, Philadelphia represented a completely different world from the largely rural world of Virginia. As described by historian Richard G. Miller, by this time, quote, Philadelphia had developed a distinct urban social culture. Its growth in the 18th century was due primarily to its location and the quality of its leadership. Philadelphia was heavily involved in the re-export trade, and this represented one of the main sources of its prosperity. Moreover, the city had a vast hinterland, from which it drew raw material and farm products to trade for manufactured goods. Unfortunately for the Paines, when they chose to move to Philadelphia, Circumstances were not all that favorable for their success. First of all, by that point, the Paines had eight children, four girls and four boys to support, a challenge in any age for people in most socioeconomic levels. Meanwhile, as described by Mattern and Schulman, by 1783, quote, war had taken its toll 
and Philadelphia shared in the national economic turmoil of the decade. The local economy had been forced to convert from maritime commerce to war-related manufacturing and back again. Paper money had become worthless. Spiraling costs and contracting trade imposed crushing expenses on small businessmen. The Payne's oldest son, Walter, had gone ahead of the family to make contacts and arrangements for the family to make the transition, and this allowed him an opportunity to get acquainted with some of the elite Quaker families in the area. A year after the Paynes moved, Walter was courting the oldest daughter of one of those families, the Drinkers. But unfortunately for the family, Walter set sail for Great Britain, likely for business purposes, and though there's no confirmation of it in the existing records, he was never heard from again, and likely was lost at sea. Dolly, meanwhile, was courted by a young flower merchant, Jacob Downing, but after the loss of Walter, Downing would ultimately switch his attentions to Sarah Drinker, the same young lady Walter had courted, and the two later wed. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. The situation for the family continued to deteriorate. A daughter who had been born to the pain shortly after the move and named Philadelphia in honor of this new phase in the family's life died in her infancy. John Payne established a starch business to support the family and, despite his success in integrating into Quaker society, becoming first an elder, then, for his speeches in the meeting, was dubbed, quote, a Quaker preacher proved not to be quite as much of a success in business. Dolly, meanwhile, struggled under the strict Quaker society of Philadelphia and was often chastised, quote, for the gaieties of this world reflected in her manner of dress. Even then, fashion was important to Dolly, but that put her at odds with the Society of Friends. One Quaker woman noted that it was only due to her mother Mary's influence that Dolly was not, quote, excluded from our society. Ultimately, though, the family would suffer shame at the hands of the Society of Friends as John Payne was read out of the meeting or, in layman's terms, expelled from the group. In 1789, John's starch business went under. Unfortunately for John, the Society of Friends, quote, equated business failure with weak character, and despite the evidence of his strict adherence to the faith, expelled him. As Al Gore described, quote, like many people whose strength lies with rigidity. John Payne broke rather than bent in the face of adversity. Apparently overwhelmed by depression, John Payne took to his bed, never raising his head or leaving his room. Despite her family's downturn, Dolly Payne still managed to hold the attention of a young man named John Todd. Apparently, John's affections for Dolly had started years prior, but unlike has happened with other young ladies whose families suffered financial difficulties, this did not change the ardor of his passion. It seems that he did ask for her hand at least once before, but she had refused him. Now, likely with her father's encouragement, as Todd would be able to take care of her in ways that even John Payne couldn't, 
Dahl accepted John Todd's hand in marriage, and on January 7, 1790, they were wed at the Pine Street Meeting House in Philadelphia. By all accounts, the match was a good one, and the young couple worked over the next couple of years to establish a foundation for their new family. In November 1791, the Todds, along with Dolly's younger sister, Anna Payne, moved into a new home described as, quote, a three-story brick house with two rooms to a floor on the corner of 4th and Walnut in Philadelphia. John Todd would practice law out of the first floor. Dolly was not just a domestic support for John. She apparently supervised Todd's law apprentices while her husband was away on business. When they moved into this home, Dolly was already with child, and on February 29, 1792, their first son was born and was named John Payne Todd. Having the Payne name carry on to another generation, albeit as a middle name, reflects a closeness and affection to Dolly's family that was in the midst of its own crisis. John Payne had never recovered from his financial setbacks, but his family still needed some source of income in order to survive. As described by Mattern and Schulman, quote, to keep the family afloat financially, Mary Payne converted their home into a boarding house for members of the federal government temporarily residing in Philadelphia. This business quickly proved a success, but his family's improved financial status did not help John Payne, who ultimately passed away on October 24, 1792. The summer of 1793 saw this young family grow once more with the birth of their second child, William Temple Todd. Sadly, this joyous occasion would soon prove tragic starting in August, as an increasing number of residents in Philadelphia fell ill and passed away from the disease known as yellow fever. It quickly became apparent that this was more than just your run-of-the-mill illness making the rounds, and beyond the horror of the severe symptoms, which often only ended with death, the experts could not agree on what the cause of it was. John Todd took measures to protect his young family, sending Dolly, their young sons, and Dolly's sister Anna to the country, where they might avoid the urban conditions that seemed to be exacerbating the spread of the disease. John tried unsuccessfully to convince his parents to head to the country as well, so both to look after them as well as to keep his law practice going, he remained in Philadelphia. In mid-September, one of his apprentices fell ill and soon passed away. As September gave way to October, the Todd family was stricken with the malady, with John's father passing away on October 2nd, followed by his mother 10 days later. At this point, John left the city as he had promised Dolly that he would do, but unfortunately, he did not depart Philadelphia in time to avoid becoming infected himself. He had sequestered himself away from his family just in case, and once he started experiencing symptoms, went back to his brother's house in Philadelphia, which would ultimately prove to be the site of his demise. Meanwhile, their infant child William fell ill from yellow fever as well, and father and son both passed away on the same day, October 14, 1793. One cannot imagine the thoughts running through the mind of the 25-year-old Dolly Payne Todd at this point. Her husband and infant child were now gone, and it would be up to her to provide for her 18-month-old child, John Payne Todd. Dolly's mother Mary wrote a month later, quote, How shall I express my feelings? Oh, it seems to me as if my heart would break. My poor dear Dolly, what does she and will she suffer? How distressing is her situation. She has no friend in town to depend on. She is here among strangers and friendless. 
she is in debt for the burial of her babe and nearly moneyless, having only $19 left and a number of other debts to pay. Though it is likely that having her younger sister Anna in the household was a comfort in these difficult days, Anna was with Dolly in order to alleviate the financial burden of their mother. But now, Dolly had no means of sustaining herself, much less her toddler pain or her sister, in a city where, as noted by historian Catherine Algor, quote, food prices were unconscionably high, for farmers, fearing infection, would not bring their produce into the city. Further, Dolly's surviving in-law, John's brother James, was refusing to provide her with any of the inheritance, both from John's estate as well as that of John's parents, which was legally Dolly's. She asked for copies of the wills that had been entrusted to James's care, but he refused to provide them, knowing what he would lose by doing so. Instead, James suggested that she sell the goods and furniture that was in her house. In this confrontation, though, Dolly proved herself to not be a shrinking violet. Knowing what was rightfully hers, with her limited funds, she engaged a lawyer, and in short order, James was forced to surrender the inheritances that were due his sister-in-law. With the out-of-court settlement of the matter, as described by Al Gore, quote, Dolly emerged from the confrontation a wealthy woman, albeit wiser in the base ways of the world. With her finances settled, Dolly became a highly attractive prospect for single men in Philadelphia. As described by Al Gore, quote, men stationed themselves in the street in order to catch a glimpse of the widow Todd. Passing her, they turned back to look, leading her friend Eliza to gently chide, really, Dolly? Thou must hide thy face. There are so many men staring at thee. One of the men who saw Dolly out in the streets or about in society in the nation's capital at the time was a U.S. representative from the state of Virginia. Representative James Madison was at this point 43 years old and, to this point, had not been married once. By all accounts, he was instantly smitten by the young woman 17 years his junior and asked their mutual acquaintance, Senator Aaron Burr of New York, to introduce them. Again from Al Gore, quote, Family legend has Dolly receiving the great little Madison in a mulberry-colored satin gown. Regardless of what she actually wore, she undoubtedly captivated the shy, bookish James Madison. Madison was reserved in many situations. The presence of women only exacerbated his awkwardness. Once he set his mind on Dolly, Madison also enlisted the support of a relative of Dolly's, Catherine Coles, to speak to her on his behalf. Madison even had the First Lady, Martha Washington, telling Dolly what a good match her and James Madison would be. There were, however, consequences to consider, should she marry the Virginian. Though Madison was a man on the rise and making his way in the world, it was clear that his heart was in Virginia. It was his home. And thus, Dolly could expect that at some point, Montpelier would be her permanent home as well. Could this young woman who had adapted to the more cosmopolitan city life of Philadelphia give that up for an existence on a rural Virginia plantation? It would also bring her back into a world supported by enslaved labor after her father had sacrificed so much to forge a different path for their family. It would also mean an abandonment of her Quaker faith, or more accurately, her rejection from Quaker society. The Episcopalian James Madison was deemed a quote-unquote stranger by the Quakers, someone outside of their faith, and by marrying him, she would be read out of the faith, just as her father had for his financial failure. 
Al Gore also notes one other consideration when she wrote, quote, On a more personal level, she, Dolly, was a young, sexually charismatic woman yoking herself to an older man who boasted a sterling character, but not, perhaps, sexual charisma. She had her choice of suitors. There were likely plenty of young, successful Quaker men who she could have chosen as her betrothed. Instead, she chose James Madison. One can't help but believe that there was at least some affection in the midst, along with the fact that, with the marriage, quote, she would acquire financial security, a legal protector, and a social position. Thus, in the summer of 1794, Dolly traveled to Virginia to stay with relatives, and on September 15th, the same date as the wedding anniversary of James's parents, James Madison and Dolly Payne Todd were wed at Harewood, the estate of George Steptoe Washington and Dolly's sister, Lucy Payne Washington. James gave to his new bride as a wedding present, quote, a necklace and earrings of carved gems representing scenes from Roman history. Their return to Philadelphia for Madison to continue his work in the House of Representatives found the newlyweds moving into new lodgings. As described by Mattern and Schulman, the Madisons, quote, moved to more fashionable quarters in Philadelphia, a large and comfortable three-story house on Spruce Street with its brick sidewalks, branching elm trees, and hitching posts every 10 feet to keep horses off the sidewalks. As expected, on December 12, 1794, the Society of Friends Meeting House read Dolly out for marrying someone outside of their faith. Not only did this mean that Dolly was no longer welcome in the religious setting, but it also changed some of the friendships and relationships she had built over the years since her family first moved to Philadelphia. Her husband, however, would introduce her to a new society. Again, from Mattern and Schulman, quote, a new set of actors entered onto her stage. Her new environment contained balls and parades and festivals attending the opening of Congress or the birthday of George Washington. There were dances, plays, and visits. But if it was gay, this world was also politically charged. Every social action was freighted with the overtones of class, region, and politics. Luckily for James, Dolly proved to be an excellent helpmate in navigating the social spaces of the political world in the nation's capital. For Dolly, her entree into these new circles came at a time where debates were happening about what the role of women, or at least the upper class of white women, should be in the nation. As described by Al Gore, quote, the hostesses who presided over the Philadelphia and New Jersey parties, balls, and calling circles consciously saw themselves as engaged in the process of originating a national style of American manners and culture. At the center of capital society, Dolly was ideally placed to observe their efforts. That education would serve her well when she became the head of national society. That, however, was still in the as-yet-unknown future for the Madisons, and the time for the Madisons' residence in Philadelphia proved to be short, for at the end of his fourth term in the House, James Madison decided to retire from national politics. For Dolly, Payne, and Anna, this meant that they would return with the Virginian to his home at Montpelier. While he and Dolly had been in Philadelphia, James had been making arrangements for renovations at Montpelier. As described by Al Gore, quote, James had set about making a home for both his families, marital and natal. He built a 30-foot extension so that each family could live in relative privacy and added windows 
staircases, and more improvements, both structural and decorative. He also transformed the Virginia Country House into a neoclassical Federalist mansion by attaching an elegant portico with pillars. The result was a beautiful, graceful house in a stunning setting, where one could sit on the front porch and gaze out over the gently rolling lawn to the Blue Ridge Mountains far in the distance. As his parents were still alive, they would live in one half of the house, while James, Dolly, Payne, and Anna lived in the other half. As his father's health was growing increasingly worse, it would fall to the younger James to take a more active role in managing the business of the plantation. But as Nellie Madison was still quite capable of directing household affairs, including the management of the enslaved individuals who worked in the domestic setting, Dolly could focus her efforts on entertaining neighbors and her husband's political allies and supporters. As noted by Al Gore, quote, Dolly was learning the older ways of gentry life in the area around Orange, Virginia. The visits and parties that incorporated much political and economic business, the dense networks of family obligation, the sense of self that came from material possessions, these too would be part of Dolly's political arsenal, should the time come. Meanwhile, Dolly's son Payne was growing older. He had just turned five a couple of months prior to the family's arrival at Montpelier in 1797. It would fall to his stepfather, James Madison, to begin his early instruction, and, as one would expect, Madison took the matter seriously. Payne, however, was another story. As noted by Payne's biographer, Philip Bigler, quote, he, i.e. Payne, seemed to prefer frolicking around the plantation, playing with the slave children, and attending to the plantation's horses rather than studying. This growing proclivity towards idleness was a matter of some concern, and it was during this Montpelier interlude that Payne first began to exhibit some disturbing character flaws. He could be stubborn and willful at times, but his mother seemed incapable of disciplining the child and would frequently excuse his youthful transgressions. This time at Montpelier would indeed only be an interlude for the family, for Madison's retirement from public office would not last long. His friend and associate, the Vice President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, kept him abreast of developments in Philadelphia as the Federalist leaders in the administration and Congress put forward legislation abhorrent to the Democratic Republicans. Upon the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798, Jefferson and Madison decided to take action and drafted what would come to be known as the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions as a response. The next year, Madison was convinced to stand for election to the Virginia House of Delegates and began this term in Richmond in December 1799. In addition to fighting for Democratic-Republican principles in the state capital of the Old Dominion, Madison also directed efforts across the nation to elect Thomas Jefferson as the third president of the United States in the 1800 presidential election. As we know, dear listeners, Jefferson's bid for the presidency, though a bit rocky at times, was ultimately successful, and he would quickly summon his trusted colleague from Orange County to join him in the administration as his Secretary of State. The Madisons would not be returning to Philadelphia, however, for the nation's capital by this point had moved further south to a city still under construction by the Potomac River. After settling matters related to James Madison Sr.'s passing, James, Dolly, Payne, and Anna Travel from Montpelier to Washington, D.C. in May 1801. As lodging was difficult to get in the city, with a flood of politicians and government officials claiming the few rooms and houses available, the Madisons would initially have to stay with friends. 
They had an offer from William and Anna Maria Thornton to stay at their home on F Street, but they opted to accept Jefferson's offer to stay with him at the president's house. As described by Al Gore, these lodgings, quote, may not have been as tight as the congressman's, but were certainly far from grand, given the leaking roof, unfurnished rooms, few servants, and lack of even the most basic comforts. It was no wonder Thomas Jefferson quipped that he and his private secretary, Meriwether Lewis, rattled about the drafty, barracks-like building like two mice in church. Though Jefferson would have been glad for the foursome to stay with him on a permanent basis, the Madisons decided that they wanted their own place, and thus, quote, chose to live over the store in the six buildings at Pennsylvania Avenue and 22nd Street that also temporarily housed the Department of State. These lodgings, too, were temporary, for they returned to Montpelier two months later, and Madison asked Thornton to make inquiries about another home for them in Washington for their return in the fall. Thornton didn't have to look far. He made arrangements for the Madisons to move into the house next door to his own, which was described as having, quote, four bedrooms on the third floor and a cellar divided into wine and coal rooms. The roof boasted a cupola. It would be into this home that they would move when they returned in mid-October, and Dolly would take over the management of domestic affairs. Again from Algor, quote, Dolly took care of the myriad mundane details, deciding which furniture to bring from the country and what she needed to buy in town, helping settle her husband and nine-year-old pain into their routines. And there were more significant logistical decisions to be made as well. Some enslaved people came up from Montpelier, including Paul Jennings, James's valet, Suki, Dolly's personal maid, and Joe Bolin, a coachman. Dolly also hired slaves from local families to meet the Madison's needs. James Madison attempted to keep up his work in tutoring the young Payne Todd, but his work as Secretary of State was quite involved, and Payne was still unmotivated to pursue academic matters. As described by Bigler, quote, it was obvious that the undisciplined boy needed far more structure and discipline in his schooling. Thus, James and Dolly decided in 1803, after Payne turned 11, to enroll him in the Alexandria Academy, a school founded in 1785 by George Washington himself, and that, quote, was considered to be a remarkably progressive institution for its time. An attractive feature of this new school, besides its close location just across the Potomac from the nation's capital, was that it was primarily staffed with instructors who had studied at the College of New Jersey, Madison's alma mater. As described by Bigler, quote, these educators were well-renowned for their academic prowess as well as their intellectual rigor. Moreover, the academy offered a challenging classical curriculum which would help young Payne in his ongoing preparation for his future college entrance exams. Although while attending the school, Payne would be living apart from his parents, he would still be supervised by several friends and relatives who lived in close proximity to the academy. As Algar wrote in her biography of Dolly, quote, with Jefferson and Vice President Aaron Burr, both widowers, the Madisons were the leading family in the nation's capital, and it was up to the lady of that family to create society for the city. Dolly quickly threw herself into the task, and shortly after arriving formed a close friendship with Margaret Bayard Smith, a figure who has come up in the podcast time and time again. Smith's husband, Samuel Harrison Smith, was the owner and publisher of the National Intelligencer, the leading Democratic-Republican newspaper in the nation's capital, and this friendship with Margaret quickly connected Dolly with the city's movers and shakers. Rather than just waiting for folks to come to her, Dolly paid calls on important figures in Washington. Again from Algor, quote, 
Dolly's calling focused on three distinct and disparate segments of the population. Local gentry families, many of them not connected to the federal government. The official families, who came to the seat of power through office holding. And the few but significant foreign visitors and officials. Each of these groups had a different investment in Washington City, and each was linked with its various enterprises. The friendship with their neighbors, the Thorntons, would prove advantageous for the Madisons as well. William Thornton was the architect of the U.S. Capitol building, and, with their early arrival in the process of the city's construction, they had become well-connected to local leaders as well as government officials. Further, as Thornton differed politically in ideology from the Secretary of State, Dolly's connection to Anna Maria provided her with information from other political circles in the capital city, which Dolly would use to her advantage as she worked through the social setting to bridge political gaps. As Algor explained, quote, If Americans across the country hoped that the two warring parties were reconciling in Jefferson's Washington, the only venue where that took place was Dolly's table. She did her best to bring everyone in the capital, locals, officials, and visitors, together under her roof. In contrast to Jefferson's carefully calibrated events, the Madisons invited men of both parties to the house on F Street. The Madisons' dinner parties also mixed men and women. By their very presence, women softened the tone of political rhetoric, while paradoxically forwarding the opportunities for political wheeling and dealing. Midway through Jefferson's first term, the Madisons would be joined in the political work and the social networking by family members as John G. Jackson, the husband of Dolly's sister Mary, was elected to the House of Representatives representing the Virginia 1st Congressional District. John and Mary traveled to the nation's capital in October 1803 for John to take up his seat, and the Jacksons would soon become regular guests at the Madisons' home on F Street. Sadly for Dolly, she would only have two of her sisters with her in Washington, D.C. for a short time, for in March 1804, Dolly's younger sister Anna, who, at this point, had lived with her sister for over 12 years and had been with her through difficult times and joyous successes, married Representative Richard Cutts of Massachusetts. While his status as a congressman meant that Anna would still return to Washington on a regular basis, it was still a difficult transition for Dolly, who had grown comfortable with having the young lady that she referred to, quote, as her daughter's sister, or sister child, as a part of her household. Al Gore speculates that, quote, if more children had followed pain, the attachment to Anna would have been less fierce. But, after years of childlessness with James, Dolly knew Anna was probably the only daughter she would ever have. The next four years would carry with them many struggles and tragedies for Dolly. In June 1805, an ulcer developed on Dolly's knee, and the ulcer would not heal, no matter how much she tried to rest it. Doctors were called in and, quote, tried to immobilize the infected leg using tight splints. The pain continued to grow and, quote, caustic substances were applied in order to burn it out. It was apparent to both James and Dolly that there was no way they could travel back to Montpelier that summer as planned, and James instead felt that they should travel north to Philadelphia to seek the more well-renowned doctors of that city. Thus, at the end of July, they headed north and engaged the services of Dr. Philip Singh Physic. Physic was, as described by Al Gore, quote, one of America's leading doctors as well as a professor of surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Fezzik did his initial consultation with Dolly at their lodgings on Sansom Street and predicted that he could, in fact, heal her. 
though he had initially estimated a month for her treatment. It would ultimately take several months for Dolly to heal. Al Gore described that, quote, even confined to bed or chair, she, i.e. Dolly, was the most popular woman in town. Visitors filed in to see Dolly, and along with James, she had numerous people staying with her, including Amy, who was Dolly's, quote, childhood nurse and former slave. Still, this time was quite sad for her, being away from home and having to wait each day for news of her loved ones, especially Anna, who at that point was pregnant with her first child, who was born in August and named James Madison Cutts. Though James had for months stayed at Dolly's side, providing comfort and making sure her every need was attended to, he ultimately had to make his return to Washington, D.C. in order to attend to affairs at the State Department, and thus left Philadelphia in October. As noted by Bigler, quote, it would be the first time in the couple's 12-year marriage that they would be separated for an extended period of time. This period of separation, however, provided future scholars with a wealth of letters between the two, which give us insight into their relationship. Dolly's health started to improve during James's absence, and finally, in late November, Dr. Physick gave her the green light to head back to Washington. Representative Cutts and her sister Anna arrived and escorted her back to the capital city and her waiting husband. In her absence, James had been making arrangements for the now 13, going on 14-year-old Payne Todd to attend St. Mary's College in Baltimore. Though some in America objected to the idea of Protestant students attending a Catholic school due to a prominent anti-Catholic prejudice in the larger white society in the U.S., the Madisons did not share those views. And, as noted by Bigler, quote, the highly structured atmosphere at St. Mary's seemed to be a perfect environment for the increasingly distracted Payne. Thus, at the end of 1805, Payne enrolled at St. Mary's and joined a population of 125 students there. As Payne started on this new phase of his education, their Payne family relations would suffer one loss after another. In 1806, Dolly's nieces, named Dolly and Lucy after their mother's sisters, passed away at the ages of five and three, respectively. Then, in February 1808, Mary Payne Jackson passed away after suffering from declining health for some time. October 1808 saw the death of their mother, Mary Coles Payne, likely from a stroke. This loss, even more than the others, hit Dolly hard, and, as noted by Al Gore, quote, for weeks after, Dolly could not pick up her pen, let alone cope with ordinary business. Luckily for Dolly, as well as her husband, at that point, the work required to make her husband president was largely done. Dolly had been the point person for entertaining movers and shakers for months who could help to ensure success for her husband's candidacy in the 1808 presidential election. The stress had caused her to suffer from a bout of inflammatory rheumatism in June of that year, but Dolly had pressed on. She increasingly leaned on her husband for support, as well as her remaining sisters, despite the geographic distance between them. As described by Al Gore, quote, In their shared loss, Dolly, Anna, and Lucy drew even closer together, and Dolly's need for family, for love and comfort, increased. Her husband's election and the process of planning for their taking up residence in the President's House likely provided a much-needed distraction for Dolly. But just know that this was where Dolly found herself in life as her husband approached his inauguration as President on March 4, 1809. With that, our time together is drawing to a close. Next up will be my interview with Hillary Hicks of James Madison's Montpelier, 
Then we'll wrap up this mini-series on Dolly Madison with an episode on her life after her and James left the president's house in 1817. After that, we'll resume our regular narrative episodes in the Madison series. Before we part ways, though, I'd like to say a special thanks again to Kevin, Karen, and Alex for reading the opening quotes for this episode. Special thanks also to the itinerant band for graciously allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for the series. Special thanks also to Alex Van Rose for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Alex's services for editing your podcast or audio project, a link to his Fiverr page can be found on the sources section for this episode on the website. You can find a link to more information on the itinerant band, as well as the sources used for this episode at the podcast's website, which is Presidency's Podcast, all one word, dot com. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send me an email at Presidency's Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow me and connect on social media. I'm on Facebook at Presidency's, on Twitter at Presidency's 89, and on Instagram at Presidency's Podcast. Finally, I'd like to thank you for listening. I'm so thankful to have you on this journey through presidential history with me, and I hope you'll join me next time as we continue on this path together. Until then, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.